One commentator said that following the church through the book of Acts is a lot like following a wounded deer through the woods. The trail is marked by blood. Not only through the book of Acts, but through the church's long historical pilgrimage, the trail is marked by blood. And the first drops of blood, other than our Lord's, of course, are Stephen's blood, whose martyrdom we looked at a few weeks back in Acts chapter 7. It was both a savage crime and an imitation of Christ's own passion. Undergone, the text told us, with a vision of the open heaven, of the glory of God, as he was being stoned. And Jesus, his advocate, standing in his defense at the right hand of God. He's the first Christian martyr. And there was a young man at the scene, the text tells us, named Saul. Introduced into the narrative for the first time. And those stoning Stephen laid their garments at his feet. And we're told in the beginning of the text that was read from Acts today, we're told in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, ominously, Saul approved of the execution. He was not just an innocent bystander. He was complicit. And this morning, we'll look at the immediate after effects of the stoning of Stephen. We'll make three points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. The scattering... Samaria and Simon. The scattering, Samaria and Simon. So first the scattering. So we're in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 1. There arose that day, the very day of Stephen's martyrdom, the same day, there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So the killing of Stephen seems to open for a season anyway the floodgates. Notice the text calls it a great persecution. It's the beginning of the great tribulation through which we must enter the kingdom of God. And, we're told, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, your ears should prick up a little bit at this word scattered. It's the word that we get diaspora from when we speak of the Jews of the diaspora the Jews of the scattering, Jews driven away from their homeland. Right? Old Israel was scattered, and the renewed Israel is also scattered. And the New Testament talks like this. right? Peter speaks of the new Israel, the church in Asia Minor, as elect exiles of the dispersion. James, the same way in his epistle, speaks of the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So the church partakes of this exilic scattering that Israel partook of as exiles. But we should be clued in by this, that this scattering is going to serve the purposes of God for Israel and for the nations. And the places to which they're scattered, they confirm this. They were scattered, we're told, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, remember, all the way back in chapter 1 of the book of Acts, right? Jesus told the disciples, you will receive power. 
You'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea and Samaria, which is what we have here. They were scattered to Judea and Samaria. And finally, Jesus says, to the ends of the earth. So that's the divine plan. That's the geographical order of the gospel witness. From Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria. And that is precisely what this scattering does. Right? It thrusts the church out from Jerusalem and it advances the gospel into Judea and then into Samaria. So we see that this persecution creates a scattering, and the scattering serves the sovereign purposes of God. Right? Purpose, purposes which he revealed beforehand through the risen Christ to the disciples. Now, notice this in the text. It says, they were all scattered except the apostles. The apostles were not scattered. We're not told why, but presumably... They must have felt it was their duty to stay and shepherd the church in Jerusalem during this dangerous time of persecution. And so Stephen is buried, we're told, by devout men who made great lamentation over him. And Saul is now ravaging the church, the text says. And this word ravaging implies brutal, sadistic cruelty. He spares, if you read the text, he spares neither men nor women. He drags them both off to prison. He would, he tells us later, seek and secure the death of God's witnesses. So this is the scattering of the church. Let's look at its effects under our second point, which is Samaria. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Right, here's the frustrating thing and the elusive thing if you're an enemy of Christianity. It prospers when you try to kill it and you try to scatter it, right? Those who went about, who were scattered, went about preaching the word. So to scatter the church is to scatter the word. Those who are scattered scatter the seed of the word. Five times in this passage, something akin to this is said. They preached the word. Philip proclaimed Christ. They preached the good news about the kingdom of God. They spoke the word of the Lord. They preached the gospel in many villages. The word, the word, the word. What Paul calls the sword of the spirit. The only offensive weapon the church has need of. So the whole book of Acts can be told, and really is told, as the progress of the word. Often Luke, who writes the book, right, personifies the word. He'll say the word grew, the word increased, the word bore fruit, the word multiplied, the word prevails. Right? The church is the creature of the word, meaning she comes into existence by this word, and she's the custodian of this word, nothing more, nothing less. This word is decisive, this word determines the existence of the church. And verse 5 then tells us that Philip, right, this is not the apostle Philip. There's an apostle named Philip. This is the Hellenistic Jewish believer who was one of the seven with Stephen. This Philip goes down to a city of Samaria and proclaims to them the Christ. 
Now, it's told simply enough. Luke sometimes has a kind of journalistic, matter-of-fact style. But you'll remember that Samaria is where Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. She was waiting for the Christ, whom she met face-to-face that day. I know the Messiah is coming, and he will tell us all things, she says to him. To which Jesus replies, I who speak to you am he. His disciples were astonished that he was talking to this woman. So Philip, from the Jerusalem church, a Hellenistic Jew, maybe not quite at home in Jerusalem, he here proclaims Christ, now exalted to the same Samaritan people, right? To the countrymen, if you will, of the woman at the well. Now, if you want to see the glory of the gospel here, it's important to understand the bitter history that's in play. Right? By the time of Jesus, we are told, and this is in John's gospel, we are told that the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. There's deep alienation between the Jews and the Samaritans. Devout Jews would not travel through Samaria. Like if they wanted to get north of Samaria up to Galilee, the region where Jesus grew up, and you were in Jerusalem, you'd cross over the Jordan River, you'd walk on the other side of the Jordan River up north of Samaria and cut over into Galilee so you didn't walk straight up through Samaria. And the reason for this is that there was intense racial and theological hatred between Jews and Samaritans. So here you should start to think of the people you hate the most, or may perhaps disdain the most, theologically. You might think they're unclean. You might despise them politically. This is the kind of situation that's on the ground here. The Samaritans were considered by Jews the descendants of the rebellion of the northern kingdom, which we read about, we just heard that read from 1 Kings. The northern kingdom broke from the house of David and the southern kingdom in Judea hundreds of years before this. Right? And the Samaritans are from up there, that little breakaway group. This northern kingdom became known as Samaria. And it was carried into exile by the Assyrians in the 8th century B.C., 722. Having exiled the ten northern tribes, the Assyrians weren't satisfied. They repopulated the land. Right? They had an imperial, the Assyrians had an imperial policy of repatriating foreigners into the lands they conquered so that the conquered people could not regather. So not only did they carry the ten northern tribes into exile, they filled the land with foreigners from all over the Assyrian Empire. And those foreigners would eventually marry some straggler Jews who were left behind. And those are the Samaritan people. So in the minds of the Jews down in the southern part, down in and around Jerusalem, the Samaritans are half-breeds. They're impure. They're not true Jews. Maybe they're not quite Gentiles, but they're unclean. (laughs) So on top of this, the Samaritans set up their own temple. Right? They didn't go to the temple in Jerusalem. Right? They set up their own temple. They had their own holy mountain. Not Mount Zion in the south. They had their own mountain that they created, Mount Gerizim. They had their own Bible. 
They didn't accept anything in the Old Testament after the first five books of Moses. The Jews in the South accepted various historical books and prophets, not the Samaritans. Just the five books of Moses, that's it. We call that the Samaritan Pentateuch. So, the animus, right? The hostility here is deep. You want to know how deep it is? About a century before Christ, the Jews went up and destroyed the Samaritan temple. And about a generation before our text, the Samaritans came down into the south and scattered bones in the temple of Jerusalem to defile it. So the two parties are on the brink of some kind of perpetual ethnic war. And the Romans had to be dispatched on numerous occasions to put down armed fighting between the two groups. In John's Gospel, in chapter 8, Jesus is called by his enemies a Samaritan and demon-possessed in the same breath. And in Luke's Gospel, which was the Gospel lesson this morning, we read that after being rejected in Samaria, his disciples desire to call down fire from heaven and destroy these people. They figure that's the righteous thing to do, right? Notice why he was rejected in the gospel lesson. So his disciples go into Samaria. Jesus says, I want to go into Samaria. Right? And his disciples go in and make some preparations for him to stay. And the people say, where is he going, basically? And, and he, they're told he has his face set on Jerusalem. But they hate Jerusalem. And they despise the Jerusalem temple. So they won't allow the disciples to make any preparations for Jesus' ministry in Samaria. And the disciples, who are the product of this history that I've just outlined, they think, we know what Jesus will approve. How about a strike from heaven, a fire? And Jesus rebukes them. And in some versions, Jesus tells them, you have no idea what you're made of. So this is an intense, smoldering cauldron. Now, as an aside, remember this. Imagine the offense when Jesus makes the Jewish leaders, the villains, he tells a parable. He makes the leaders of the Jews, the priests and the Levites, the villains. And he makes a Samaritan the hero. Right? On the parable of loving your neighbor. We often miss this because we're so used to the phrase good Samaritan being a good, a good thing. Right? But it would be like for us hearing a parable of the good jihadist. Right? where the noble patriotic Americans are the villains and the jihadist actually stops on the side of the road and loves his enemy, his neighbor. So Jesus is aware of this and he puts his finger right on it. That parable of the Good Samaritan is a parable which if you tell it in the wrong spot, you can get yourself killed by that parable. So, we have Philip, a Hellenistic Jew, disowned in Jerusalem. Right, going to the northern kingdom. Right? He wasn't scattered to a safe place. He's scattered into hostile territory. And he goes to these Samaritans and he proclaims the gospel to him, to them, right? Which means he's setting aside whatever his own personal ethnic or political opinions about the Samaritans might be. I mean, the the Samaritans have their own mangled ideas about the temple and about the Torah. But here's the point, beloved. The gospel covers a multitude of sins. Right? 
including theological sins. It covers an abundance of historical animus and violence and alienation. The gospel, when it's embraced and preached properly, unleashes a flood of mercy on the world. This is the ground upon which it is designed to work. The fact that it doesn't, well, that we can talk about that another time. In some cases, it doesn't. But this is what the gospel does here. So we read in verse 6 that the crowds, with one accord, they paid attention to what was said by Philip. Perhaps because Philip was rejected by Jerusalem. Perhaps because Philip was a diaspora Hellenistic Jew. For whatever reason, they heard him. Most likely because he did astounding signs and miracles to authenticate his message. He did exorcisms and healings. Signs which we have seen are about the power of the coming kingdom. The kingdom of God breaking into this fallen, disordered, demonic, diseased age. So these signs remind us, these these miracles, which were restricted generally to the apostles and their colleagues. They remind us, though, that salvation is ultimately the healing, the beautification, the glorification of the whole human person. Right? We are opposed to all disease, all death, in all its forms. We don't accept it as natural. Right? The whole person, body, and soul. I've cited before, but I'll cite it again. Right? The great second century church father Irenaeus said, the glory of God is the human person fully alive. Isn't that beautiful? The glory of God is the human person fully alive. And so we're told there was much joy in that city. It's an astounding thing when a Jerusalem-based Jew brings the gospel of Jesus to the Samaritans. And there's joy because he proclaims the kingdom and the kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. Now, if you skip ahead down to verse 14... The apostles in Jerusalem, they heard that Samaria had received the word of God. And they sent Peter and John there. Now, this John that goes is the same John who wanted to call fire down on the Samaritans in Luke's gospel. They're probably like, you're ready to go now, right? And so John says, yes, I'll go. John goes with Peter. Jerusalem had received the word. Now Samaria has received the word. Later we're told in similar language that through the Roman centurion Cornelius, the Gentiles received the word. This language marks off stages. This language of receiving the word. And so the Samaritans, as kind of like half-breed Jews, they're like a bridge. You should think of them as a bridge between the Jewish root of the church and the Gentile world. Right? They're in between. They're straddling the world, the Jewish-Gentile divide. So this is a critical phase in the history of redemption. And this unique moment accounts for the strangeness of what happens next. Peter and John come, and they pray for these Samaritan believers that they might receive a different kind of fire from heaven, namely the Holy Spirit. The text says this, for he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then the apostles laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. It's kind of an abnormal situation, and I want to reiterate that. It's not a normative pattern 
It's not something we should expect to recur or to imitate. The reason that this is done this way, the reason you have to fetch the apostles from Jerusalem and bring them up here to lay hands on these people so they can receive the Spirit, is precisely that you're at this turning point with the Samaritans. And it's precisely this long history of alienation that we tried to document. The Spirit is delayed to the Samaritans precisely to enable Jewish, Jerusalem-based, southern kingdom believers, if you will, to come and to confirm publicly, indeed, that the hated and detestable Samaritans have embraced the gospel, the same gospel as us, and they are recipients of the same spirit that we've received. This is the Samaritan Pentecost. Just as the Jews had Pentecost in Acts 2, here the apostles from Jerusalem come and the spirit is given to the Samaritans. The whole purpose of this arrangement, which can be hard to follow, I understand, but is to facilitate healing and reconciliation. It demonstrates, then, the gospel's power to transcend long-held, you know, public, political, racial, theological, they're all involved, personal bitterness. So that's what's going on, but it's not everything that's going on. It's not only that this is a bridge to the Gentiles. If you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll notice something. And it's signaled by this text. The promises in the prophets are about all of Israel. The whole kingdom being restored. All 12 tribes being restored in unity and peace under a new Davidic king. You might notice that. It's it's all throughout the Old Testament. And this embrace of the Samaritans... Right, Jews, whose blood is mixed with the nations, right? Jews from the northern kingdom means that that promise is now beginning to be fulfilled. So, for example, now we're not used to thinking this way because we just tend to think as Gentiles that the gospel's for everybody. And but there's a history here that's important. If you look in Ezekiel 37, it speaks of the restoration of Israel. It's described as Israel being raised from the dead. And it's clearly about the northern and the southern kingdoms, about all 12 tribes, not just the house of David, all Israel. Remember, these 10 tribes have been lost since the 8th century B.C., right? They're scattered in the wind and dispersed among the nations. But they are going to be gathered back, reconciled in peace, united under a Davidic king with God dwelling in their midst. That is signaled here by the apostles from Judah in the south Embracing these motley Samaritans in the north in the shared gift of the Spirit. So this little incident is a bridge both to the scattered tribes of Israel and ultimately out to the Gentile world. So that's the Samaritans. Finally, there's this character, Simon. It's not all smooth sailing in Samaria. They encounter this magician named Simon, often known as Simon Magus because of the word magic. And the whole populace is amazed by this guy. He's documented in other literature, this figure. He was quite popular and renowned. And they're all enthralled with him. Here's what the text says. This man is the power of God that is called great, which seems akin to treating him as a kind of deity. And into this world of magic and sorcery, 
Now remember, at this time, the border between magic and sorcery and science is kind of fuzzy. Philip comes into this world preaching, and we're told that he preaches this. The good news, that's the word for gospel. The good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. So this is a kingdom opposed to this kind of demonic magic. Many believe and are baptized, including this Simon, the magician. And he starts following Philip around. And he's amazed at what Philip's doing. Instead of people being amazed at his magic, the text says he's now amazed at what he sees Philip performing. And when he saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered the apostles money that he might have the same power. He didn't seek the Spirit, really. He sought power. Like, power was key for this guy. He wanted the power to do what the apostles were doing. And it's from this confused and repugnant action that we get the word simony. You may know that word, right? Simony is the buying and selling of church offices. Simony was part of the reason the Reformation happened. Eventually, you could just go buy a bishopric. If your father was wealthy enough and you were in the Middle Ages... You know, you could, you could go buy a seat in the church. You could buy an office. You could buy a whole bunch of other things. All sorts of beneficences. Right? Calvin had to give all these up when he converted to the faith. So this is the, the seed of a really bitter plant that grows for centuries. Right? This is a trafficking in spiritual things, especially offices. But here, power for crude economic gain. So Simon, and by the way, I mean, we, obviously we have this, a plague of this stuff all over the modern church. It wouldn't be hard to find this, perhaps, on your television set. But certainly missionaries and people tell us that there are whole parts of the world that are afflicted with this health and wealth gospel, which is just another form of using the gospel as a means of you know, economic gain. But Simon appears to think like this. He thinks, oh, these guys are some kind of religious magicians. I'm a magician. They seem to be magicians. Maybe I can continue my career with this new power. In any event, Peter not only corrects him or rebukes him, he rebukes him in the most ferocious of terms. Right? This is the Peter who said to the lame man at the temple gate, silver and gold have I none. But what I have, I can give you. And he healed the lame man. So, Peter pronounces a curse on him and his money. And he calls him to repent. And he says, if possible, the Lord may forgive you. This is considered an egregious crime by Peter. You know, this is not like some minor peccadillo. He says, you're in the gall of bitterness and iniquity. So the church has always had people that are drawn to it for various reasons, who make professions like Simon did, who get baptized like Simon did, and who are never converted like it appears Simon wasn't. Right? Our confession, chapter 10, speaks of those who seem to be called outwardly, and they have what the confession calls the common operations of the Spirit, yet they never truly come to Christ. Look at, look at the way Simon responds to Peter's rebuke. Not... He responds like an unconverted person, without any repentance. He's just afraid he was going to be judged. He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said will happen. 
That's not exactly repentance. And we're not told what happens next with Simon. But the important thing, and this should be obvious by now, he does not stop the progress or the growth or the multiplication of the word. Right? We're told that the apostles, after speaking the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem. But what did they do on their way out? They preached the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This really is an extraordinary event. Right? Neither the stoning of Stephen nor the ravaging of Saul, who will soon become a convert, nor the scattering of the church away from their homeland, nor the wickedness of Simon can or has to this day stopped the word. In fact, again, to reiterate, the suffering and scattering are what further the gospel in our text. So that is the message for us here. Yes, our culture is indifferent or numb or openly hostile. But we are to have joyful confidence in the truth and the relevance and the power of the gospel. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. God is pleased to save people by the foolishness of preaching. And this gospel can't be chained, it can't be arrested, it can't be killed. So a whole state or a whole region or a whole nation or a whole continent or a whole hemisphere turns away from it. Well, you know what's happened, right, in the last generation? Christianity has just become a southern hemisphere religion then. The vast majority of Christians in the world are in the southern hemisphere, not in the north. Already that's the case. Right? The vast majority of Christians have brown skin, not white skin. Christianity is today, it, this was not true a generation or two or three ago, but it is today a southern hemispheric, brown-skinned religion. God is not chained by the West's rebellion or the West's disbelief. Which is not to say God has given up on the West. I'm not saying anything like that. But some astonishing things have happened in the last century that no one could predict. I won't delineate them, but here's one. I'll give you one. China. China had one million Christians in 1900. One million. And then in the 20th century, you have Mao and the Cultural Revolution. You have communist oppression driving the church underground. All the missionaries in China had to leave in the the 70s, 60s and 70s. China today has somewhere, it's hard to get the right number, but somewhere between 70 and 100, 120 million Christians underground in China. So the word increases and multiplies and does what it does. Often it does it right through and in the middle of the scattering and in the persecution. This is the gospel by which you're saved, by which you stand. So God's sovereign purposes to bring this gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria all the way to you, some kid from New Jersey or wherever you're from, right? Or Rock Tavern, there it is, to the ends of the earth. Right? Your, your, your testimony to this. Right? You're not from Judea, right? You're not from Samaria. You're not from Jerusalem. You're not from Europe. You're from some place around here. And the gospel has reached you. Right? And this purpose of God can't be, it will not be thwarted. 
Now, you may not be an ordained preacher, but remember this. Neither was Philip. Right? Philip didn't go to seminary. He wasn't ordained. But you can still proclaim the word of God wherever you are scattered in the world. You're a preacher in that sense. You proclaim the good news of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. Remember, the apostles, they're back in Jerusalem. Everybody else was scattered, carrying the word with them. All of this advance was not done by the apostles preaching. It was done by non-ordained people, what we would call lay people, preaching. Preaching the name of Jesus Christ, which is above every name, right? The name at which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that means Lord of all, Lord of Jew, Lord of Samaritan, Lord of Gentile, Lord of the nations, right? To the glory of God the Father. Amen.